This morning, we will continue reading in the book of Luke. We are still in chapter 4, starting at verse 16 and reading through verse 30. Luke chapter 4, 16 through 30. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath, in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. This is the word of the Lord. You got it. You got it. You got it in there. I'm glad you did, because that, we say that because we believe it. We say that because we mean it. We say it together with one voice because the word isn't just for me and Jesus. It's not just for you and Jesus. Oh, it is that, but it is what builds our entire community. It's where we find our identity. It's where we find our purpose. And when we say it together like that, just like you hear the person's voice singing next to you and maybe your heart can't quite sing out today, Maybe the word has lost a bit of its salt and flavor for you. And to hear the voice next to you say, yes, thanks be to God. This is his word. There's value in that. There's power in that. Well, we're back in the book of Luke. And uh, I wanted to mention and highlight for you guys, uh, we had a group of about 15, 20 people here yesterday. And they were reading through the book of Luke in its entirety together. It was such a great time. We were back in room two. And, and there's no teaching, no discussion. 
It was just sitting down and reading the word around a circle together. And if you didn't want to read, you didn't have to, or you could read a couple of verses and pass it off. But it was just a really beautiful, neat time together uh, to do that. Uh, I think we want to make that a, a, a regular thing at our church. Bob and I were talking about this morning, and maybe we'll figure out a way to do that every so often, once a month maybe. Maybe there's a group of us that would just really take that on and do that. There's power in just sitting and listening, but also hearing each other's voices read. Like we say things together out loud, hearing your neighbor, your friend, some sitting next to you in a chair, hearing them read the word and through their own tone and inflection is really uh, special. So yeah, I was glad we did that yesterday. Um, this week, the story, maybe some of you have been watching, anybody watch The Chosen? It's a, a TV series on Netflix and YouTube that goes through the life of Jesus and they just kind of uh, went through this, uh, this story a couple episodes ago. I have never in all my history of ministry uh, really recommended any Christian media. But, um, and even though there's great stuff out there, but I've never felt that was my job to, to recommend to you what movies to see or things like that. But this is a really great, um, well-done uh, interpretation and telling of the story of the life of Jesus. I encourage our growth groups, actually, if you have a chance, find that. I think it's episode three from this season. Maybe watch that little 10-minute clip uh, as you start this week in your groups. I think we're going to do it tonight in our group. Um, just to get a context, they did a really good job at painting the tension in this moment. Well, we're working our way through the first half of Luke's gospel, where we're answering the question, who is Jesus? What has he come to do? And with his arrival on earth and his coming to earth, what, is, what does his ministry mean for your life, for my life today? And in May, right before I go on my, my sabbatical in June, we'll kind of get to the end of chapter 9, which is a, a, a good break in the book, where it will culminate in Peter's words, here's from Luke 9, now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, who do crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. And then he said to them, yeah, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. Amen. Who Jesus is in your life means everything. This is the crucial question, whether you're here today and don't know him yet, or you're here and you've been a longtime follower, and you're still seeking to have your life come under his lordship, under his authority, his reign as king of your life. It was the question they were asking Jesus in his time. Has he come from God for us? It was a question that was on their mind early in Jesus' ministry. In Matthew, there's a place where John the Baptist's disciples, also uh, represented in the Chosen series. He sends out his disciples as he's in prison to find and question Jesus. And are, are you the one who's come down? Are you the Messiah? Have you come to us? And Jesus responds, you know, you can know I, I'm from God because look at all these miracles that are happening. He said, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the dead are raised, the deaf hear, and the poor the poverty, the poor, impoverished, have the good news preached to them. He says to them, these things will always be present, always happen when God comes down and when the Spirit is present. The blind will receive sight, which corresponds to our own, symbolically, metaphorically, our own spiritual eyes and having those eyes opened to the truth and light of Jesus. Have you received spiritual sight? If you've not, you haven't met Jesus yet. 
The dead are raised, he said, which points to salvation as so much more than just an add-on or, or adding a few extra beliefs to our life. No, salvation is like being brought from death to life, being born again, being raised from the dead. Has that happened to you? If not, you haven't met Jesus yet. The third one was the lepers are cleansed. Not that you have to clean yourself up and rid yourself of sin to earn God's favor, but by God's grace, you are justified. You're declared clean. And now he sees you as clean because of Jesus. Has that happened to you? A clean declaration by grace. If not, you've not met Jesus yet. But there's one that stands out today in Matthew, as we read in our Luke passage today, one description that stands out that doesn't quite fit with the other types of healings. Yet wherever God is present, this happens too. The poor have good news preached to them. It's strange. It stands out. And here today, Jesus begins really at the start of his ministry in his hometown. He's the hometown boy made good who's come back home to see his family, his home, his, his home synagogue. And it's one of his first sermons where he says something very similar. Wherever God goes, the poor get the good news. Just as present as spiritual awakening, just as present as justification or sight or hearing and cleanliness is this ministry, he says, to the poor. It's super important. And the reaction he gets as he talks about this is very mixed as he reads from Isaiah 61. And it's the idea of poverty that gets them, that gets to them. The reaction goes from this bland amusement to this kind of bewildered, uh, frothing at the mouth rage in a matter of moments in this story. Because when you understand the gospel, when Jesus comes to you in your life, you cannot just accept him blandly or in self-righteous indignation, but always in abject spiritual poverty, and sometimes real poverty, actually. So let's look at what the poor can teach us today. That's what we're going to look at. We're going to examine our own hearts to see, have we received Jesus? Have you received Jesus in the way the poor receive to teach us? And do we see our identity or our own need to identify with and maybe even be those who are willing to give a little more or live with a little less? Four truths we're going to look at today from this passage. Four things that stand out. Hopefully you've got your outline there in front of you and the scripture open. These four things are going to coincide with really a simple structured passage. We've got Jesus' sermon. We've got the response. And then he gives this ongoing exposition or explanation about the sermon. So let's take a look at the first of our four truths. Here's the first one. Receiving Jesus with bland approval means you actually haven't received him at all. To be received him, him blandly, the text wants us to see this first. You receive him this way, it's actually not a way to receive him. You haven't received him at all if he comes into your life blandly. Now, to understand the impact of what Jesus does here and how he's received, we have to know a bit about the synagogue gathering. What would take place at a synagogue gathering? It was a local place in a town where the people of God would gather to worship and have a type of worship service. And the first thing I think is wise for us to see in verse 16, it says, take a look, uh, chapter 4, verse 16. 
And he came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. I think it's good for us to see right off the bat that Jesus, it was his custom to go to church. (laughs) It was his custom to attend Jesus saw the value in weekly attendance with God's people. It was his custom, Luke writes. It was the habit. It was the routine of his life to be with God's people in and surrounding God's word with God's people. Just there. It was his custom. It was his habit. Week in and week out, Jesus did this. And so should we. If the Son of God needed to be weekly with the people of God for refreshment and service and and, and hearing the truth brought into his life in a local community, how much more so do we need it? It was his custom, his habit. Well, as he attended that day, the service would have looked like this. First, it would have been packed. It's probably packed on that day. What's this local boy going to say? What is he going to talk about? We haven't seen him in a little while. We know he's come home. We know there's been some strange things happening around him. He's been saying some strange things. What is he going to do? How is he going to represent our community? Is he going to humiliate all of us in the land? What's he going to do? So in the service, they would have sung from the Psalms. They would have recited the Shema from Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Then they probably would have recited these 18 blessings called the the Tephilah. They would respond and and read these out loud together every week. Then would come the reading of scripture. They would take out the scroll, whatever the scrolls this local synagogue would have had, and bring them out, and, and they would unwrap it from cloth, and they would unroll it, maybe on something like this even. And they would, reader would stand up to read it. Probably everybody else standing too, Probably no seats, uh, maybe in those days. They probably stood. And then they would read it, and then they would give it back. And then the reader would sit down in a chair. And when he sat, it was a sign that a sermon was about to be given. And he would expound on and apply the text that they had just uh, read. And so here, Jesus chooses a passage. It says here, he looked for the passage in Isaiah that he wanted to read from Isaiah 61, which speaks of this strange in that chapter, and really all through Isaiah around that section, this strange and mysterious figure who would come to earth, who would come to God's people, who would come and bring uh, justice and goodness and righteousness and, and make everything right in the world. He'd be one that would have God's spirit upon him. Well, let's just look at it. Verse 18 and 19, it's the quote from Isaiah 61. Take a look in your text. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. Sounds like his baptism, doesn't it? Because he's anointed me to proclaim, there it is, good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. But he stops right there. He kind of stops short. He leaves out a line from Isaiah. Do you know what he left out? Take a look, here it is. He came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and then he stops. But it goes on. And the day of vengeance of our God. He stops short. Tell me that would have not got their attention. They know the passage. Wait, 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 Jesus, you stopped. It's it's like if I stood up here and said some famous lines to you but didn't complete them, you'd be like, uh, wait, if I came up and said, the only thing we have to fear is? 
Well, you know it. I hear it out there. You're saying it. To be or not? Right. Or for God to love the world. I just stopped. You, you, wait, 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 wait a minute. Finish the line. Finish the line. Jesus stopped short right there and didn't continue talking about God's vengeance. And what I think he was doing is wanting to get their attention and communicate to them that right now, right now is the time of favor, the year of the Lord's favor. Judgment will come later. And Jesus sits in that moment after he reads the scripture. And you can imagine the silence in the room with bated breath. Or what, what's he going to say? And he sits down there. They know him. They watched him grow up. They, they, they saw him as a little boy. They know his parents. They probably spent time together in the community. And now all eyes are fixed on him, verse 20 says. Fixed on him. How many of you like to have the eyes of everybody in a room on you? <laughs> it's a pretty uncomfortable feeling, isn't it? Especially if you just made some mistake or you tripped or something and everybody's watching you. I kind of feel it every week, but that's another story. <laughs> Welcome to my world. Um, but that's what, that's what Luke wants us to get. All eyes are fixed upon him in that moment. And he gives his sermon. Verse 20, take a look at it. He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. All eyes were fixed on him. And he said, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That's it. That was the sermon. Some of you are thinking, I wish you'd be more biblical, Pastor Jeff, and give one-line <laughs> sermons. Yeah, but the sermon's not about me. It was about him. He's basically saying to them, the sermon's me. The sermon's my life, Jesus is saying. I am the sermon. It's me. I fulfill this. I'm the one. It's me. All this great stuff you hear in Isaiah 61, it's me. And how do they respond? Well, it's kind of this bland approval. They like the message. Wow, Jesus, these, these are great words. It was like he was greeted at the door at the end of the message and every, every um, person said, nice sermon, pastor. Great sermon today, pastor. Great sermon. Well, you know, they were thinking, he is the carpenter's son. Okay, and they're not mad. They're, they're not shocked. They're not in, enraged in this, at that moment. Okay, the, the, it's fulfilled today. Well, what is that? Okay, Jesus, what does that mean? Why are they not, why is it just bland approval? Why are they not shocked yet? Well, here's what's going on. They can't really see yet. They are, in a sense, blind. They can't really hear him. They are, in a sense, deaf. They are, in a sense, still captured to their own sinful desires. They can't see him. They can't hear him. Because they only have one way to understand this verse. And Jesus is about to flip it on its head. They're thinking, well, we're the oppressed. We're the captives, Jesus. We're the ones coming to synagogue. We're the ones reciting the Shema and reading the Bible. We are the good ones. Yes, Jesus, those dirty Gentiles, those Romans who are oppressing us, they're the bad ones. Take care of them, Jesus. This sounds like good news. Then that's why they're like, okay, good words, Jesus, good words. Take care of them. You're going to wipe out our enemies, Jesus. Free us, free us. We're the ones who get the Messiah. We've always known that, right? We're God's people. We get the Messiah. And, you know, that whole poor thing, maybe we'll figure that out later, but destroy our enemies, Jesus. 
What had happened? They didn't get the sermon and he knew it. They didn't get it. How do we know? How do we know they didn't get it? Because when they do get it, what do they want to do? They want to murder him in a matter of just a few moments. They go from saying, nice sermon, preacher, to we're going to throw you off the cliff, preacher. I hope I never hear that from you guys. <laughs> that would be really... I, I, it's just incredible. They did not get it. We know that. They didn't understand that this, even the whole poor thing was central to his message. That the Messiah's work and the Spirit's work comes to the spiritually poor. Blessed are the poor in spirit. You've heard that line. It's right at the top of Jesus' sermons many times. The Messiah was coming for the poor, the spiritually poor. When the gospel comes to good people, as it does here, good people, the Bible readers, the church attenders, the do-gooders, do you know what happens? They're offended by the gospel. And if you sit here today and you haven't been at some point offended by Jesus, you probably haven't, haven't ever truly heard the gospel. Or if you've heard it, maybe you haven't really heard it or really seen it. These are good people in the synagogue. These are the ones you would expect God to come to and to be closest to. But in fact, Jesus says, the opposite is true and it infuriates them when they finally get it. He says, let's define what poor is. As he goes on to explain a little more exposition after the sermon. Let's define what poor is and, and look at the kind of people the Messiah reaches out to and therefore I think wants us to reach out to as well. Let's take a look at that. Jesus says in, in our second truth, Jesus is to re be received as the poor receive. As he goes on to define for them what this looks like. Receiving him as the poor receive. You see, they didn't see themselves in the metaphors as Jesus goes on to describe the poor. Oppressed, yes. Um, overrun and enslaved, yes. Rome was there to point to as a perfect example for them. But even that type of enslavement was something different Jesus was talking about. They didn't see themselves in the metaphors. He describes the poor by giving them these two stories. Two stories there of the kind of people that God goes to, moves towards, reaches out to. He knows they don't get it. He knows their hearts. Luke says all over the place, five or six times in his gospel, that Jesus can read hearts. He knows minds. He's omniscient. He's, he's God. He knows. He knows they don't get it. What they really want to say to him, and he says it for them, I know what you really want to say. You really want to say to me, hey, prove it. Prove, who you, who, prove that you are who you say you are. Show us the money. Do some tricks and miracles. Heal yourself, physician is the proverb Jesus quotes. Which they kind of say to him again, don't they? On the cross. Save yourself if you can. Come on down. Sort of foreshadowing what's going to happen someday. Well, he, he tells these two stories. Who does he talk about? He chooses two people. The widow of Zarephath and Naaman, a man with leprosy. So a poor widow and a, and a man with leprosy to show the types of poor people the gospel goes to. 
Here's something to see first. First thing for us to see here in Naaman and this widow as he tells these stories, he gives two examples. And what I think he wants us to see is that it's not the literally poor necessarily, but the spiritually poor, an outcast, one who sees their need of rescue, sees their need of help. How do we know this? Well, you don't literally have to be poor to receive Jesus. Because if we look at these two, the widow was poor, literally poor. Naaman was not poor. So poverty in and of itself is not just a virtue in and of itself. Naaman was rich. He was wealthy. He was a commander of the Syrian army. He worked for the king. But he was also a man sick with leprosy. So what Jesus means is not literally poor, but spiritually poor and outcast. That's who these people were. Elijah takes God's grace. Who does he take it to? An outsider. She was a woman, number one, which made her second class in the culture. She was a Gentile, not a Jew like Jesus' audience in the synagogue. So she was a pagan. She was a widow. She was poor. She was an outcast. In other words, she was beyond the pale in the eyes of the Jews, beyond the, the reach of God's grace. And Naaman is too. He's wealthy, yes. But who was he? He fought against God's people. He was a killer. He was an oppressor. He was a foreigner. He was a Gentile. He was a pagan too. These are not people that, that the Jewish people would have wanted to rub shoulders with. And this is how Jesus describes the spiritually poor, the people that God favors, the people that God goes to in these stories. He's holding up these two people right in front of their eyes. And he's contrasting them to the synagogue crowd that day. I'm not coming for people like you, he's basically telling them. I'm not coming for people like you. I'm coming for these types of people. Who were these in the synagogue? They were the good ones. As one commentator said, I read this week, they're, they're, like, they're like the spiritual middle class, and yet they're full of a smugness. They're not the poor, the spiritually poor. How do we know? Again, as soon as they realized God was not going to work the way they wanted him to, they lost it, didn't they? They wanted to rip him in two. Jesus shows up and, and through these stories, he's telling the people that day, you think I owe you. I don't owe you a thing. In fact, you are blind and you can't even see me. That's a sign in our lives to show us when we're not receiving Jesus the way he wants us to. Here it is. When God doesn't work the way we want him to, do you want to kind of get rid of him? Do you want to kind of kick him to the curb? Or even worse here, when you can't control him, do you want to destroy him? That's what they did. They couldn't control God. He wasn't going to work the way they thought he should, and so they want to kill Jesus. Do you have a kind of subtle maybe? Maybe it's not outspoken. But do you have a sort of heart level? Subtle hostility towards God. That maybe you hide under a, a shiny Christian veneer. They froth at the mouth. They want to kill him. 
We're good. We gather, we get together, we read the Bible, and you say you're what, Jesus? What type of person are you calling us? Who are you, Jesus? Heal yourself, show us something. The prodigal son parable, which we'll look at in the fall, chapter 15, helps us understand this. If you know that story, there were two sons that this father had. But what's interesting about that parable is that both of them keep the father at an arm's length in two different ways. We know the one son, he's more obvious. He runs off, he takes the father's inheritance when the father's still alive. Try asking for your inheritance when your dad's still alive. (laughs) Give me the inheritance, dad. And he takes the inheritance and he totally disobeys. Rather than stay home as the hometown boy on the family farm, No, he goes, he disobeys, and he takes his money and he runs and blows it on all kinds of stuff. That's pretty obvious. But the other son stays on the family farm. He's good. He does the right thing. He loves the community. He keeps the honor of the family name intact. He obeys all the time. And when the first son comes home in repentance, what happens to the good boy, the older son? He gets furious at the father. Does it sound like somebody we just read about? You're not acting the way I think you should. You're loving this spiritually bankrupt son of yours, my brother, and I'm not getting anything out of you. He's so angry. Why? Well, there's actually two ways in life. Do you know that? There's actually two ways in life to keep God at a distance from you. One way is to be very bad. We get it, right? Self-discovery, leave the family farm, go out on your own, live the way you want, however you want. But the other way to keep God at distance is by being very good. Being very good. I've always done this. I have always obeyed. You owe me, God. Which camp do you think Jesus' listeners fell into that day? Yeah, the elder brother. And you know we struggle with it too. I struggle with it. I follow the Bible. I gather with God's people. Hey, I stand up and lead in front of God's people and lead them. I obey. And yet I get mad when God lets things into my life I didn't plan for. You're going to work this way? This is what you're going to do? I know I've got a plan for my life, God. It's very elder brother. Or do you find yourself praying, God, why does she have a better life? I'm the one living for you. I'm the one who sacrificed. Why does, why does he have more than me? Look, look, look how I've lived, God. It's rebellion through obedience. There's two ways to keep God away from you. Disobedience and obedience. It's only those who receive Jesus as the spiritually poor person who actually receive him. They know they're down and out. They know they need deliverance. Uh, An an actually poor person too does. They know they're down and out. They know they need deliverance. And we've also got here a leper. He's the greatest outcast. And both the widow and Naaman, if you read the stories, they're willing to do things that are really sacrificially humble. You know, Jesus' listeners in the synagogue who that one commentator called the spiritually middle class, they're smug. They can't handle the outsider. 
They can't handle the, the foreigner, Naaman, or this Gentile woman. They can't handle the poor. They just can't handle it. They can't handle it when someone comes into their presence who's different or who isn't living the good life. Makes them uncomfortable. It makes you and I uncomfortable, doesn't it? We tend to get smug, maybe, or judge and look down. And Jesus was saying, I'm going to bring those people right in the middle of your synagogue today and put them right in front of you. It's hard. What type of person would that be for you? Think about it for a moment. We all would have somebody, person, type of person, class, or different person. What would be the type of person if they came down and sat down right now next to you in that open seat that would make you kind of go, like one of those, you know? Who would that be for you? Who would that be? Spiritually poor person who receives Jesus is willing to kind of get into the mess a little bit. Rub shoulders with somebody that doesn't quite look or talk or smell like them, maybe. I don't know. They're willing to get down to their own heart, the spiritually poor person. Not just the surface. Yeah, sure, I've done some bad things and some good things, but overall, maybe I've kind of come out ahead. No, 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 no. No, you come poor to Jesus. I have nothing to offer you, Jesus. You are everything. I am the spiritual outcast. Even if I've got this shiny religious veneer, I am the spiritual outcast. He has to be received like the spiritually poor Naaman, like the poor widow. You gotta receive him that way to truly receive him. And yet our third truth is this one. Many times Jesus is received best by the actually poor, the actual outcast. What's interesting about the Bible and really interesting about what Jesus says in the synagogue is that time and time again, the stories of the Bible and what God does is he goes to the poor person over against the powerful person time and time again. And we're going to see that a lot in Luke. Those that read through it yesterday, the whole book, you saw this a lot. The outsider becomes the insider, is what Jesus does. The kingdom of the world gets turned upside down. All the values and structures and, 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 and things that the world values get turned upside down. Mary and Joseph, they're dirt poor. How do we know? The sacrifice they made at the temple was these two pigeons, the poorest people's sacrifice when they took Jesus in. The man with the unclean man with the demon. He heals lepers. He goes to paralytics. He goes to tax collectors. He goes to a centurion, a Gentile soldier, outsider. Rich man or Lazarus? Lazarus. Widows. Time and time again, he goes to women. That's why women flocked to Christianity in the early days. For the very first time, they were given the same dignity and value as a man. Jesus modeled it. He went to women. Men and women are there. Who does he go to? He goes to the women. Here in this story, the racial insiders and the racial outsiders, who does he go to? The outsider. Over and over again, this is the way Jesus works. The poor, the outcast, generally speaking, are more open to the gospel. 
And this is why they're so furious with him. They don't know why Elijah went to some poor, outcast, pagan, Gentile woman. It doesn't make sense. She didn't deserve it. And that's exactly the point. Jesus is received best by those who know they don't deserve it. In fact, they deserve his judgment. And the poor, just tend, generally speaking, they get that. In God's infinite mercy, he structured the world so that those who see their biggest physical need many times see their biggest spiritual need and receive the gospel as the biggest gift. It's those who've been discarded in culture, in, in our town, in our state, in our nation, in our world, those who've been pushed out from the center that see their need of Jesus as the center of their life. Those who've been pushed out. And it's been that way throughout the Bible stories, throughout our culture. Women who've been pushed out by the hands of men. When you think of our nation's history, blacks pushed out at the hands of white people. It's happened. Minorities at the hands of a dominant culture. That's right here in Jesus' story. It's just been the way of the world. Jesus gets received more generally by those who are the outcast. Remember, he stopped. Remember, he stopped? He stopped reading there. Isaiah, he says, this is the year of the Lord's favor. And he stops there. He doesn't talk about the judgment. Why is that? And why do the poor sometimes generally get the gospel better? Well, in this visit, he was going to bring the Lord's favor on people. But how was he going to do that? How is Jesus going to do that? Do you know how Jesus is going to do that? He's going to become an outsider himself. He's going to become an outsider, an outcast himself. He was going to not bring judgment now. He was going to receive judgment on our behalf long before he would ever bring it. He'd be tortured. He'd be executed for our peace and blessing to free us is what the passage says. Free us, release us from our spiritual debts and bondage to sin. Remember the crowd, they were the good people. The crowd in the synagogue, they were the good. They were the religious people and they could not accept that God was not going to work in the way they wanted. They wanted control. They wanted power. They wanted victory. They wanted might. And here comes Jesus and says, the gospel is exactly opposite of that. My gospel comes to the weak. Because I came to, to give up my power and be weak and be betrayed for you. You cannot receive him blandly when you see what he's done for you. To receive the favor of the Lord, you have to give up your own way, your own will, your own power, your own self-righteousness and accept the free gift of grace. And if you do that, if you truly receive him that way, you'll be able to give up all kinds of things in your own life. All kinds of things you thought you had to have to be okay. Your rights, your privileges, your money. As Jesus talks about poverty here. Your time. You'll be generous, in other words. You'll be willing, maybe even willing, to even maybe be poor if God asks you to be for the sake of others. That's pretty radical. Those who've been pushed out, the poor, they kind of get it. They see that. The ones at the top tend to think, more often than not, 
that they're there because of their own willpower, hard work, and kind of savvy alone, and everybody else is kind of maybe lazy. But the reality is, of course, hard work matters, right? Of course. We wouldn't want to downplay that. But the reality is it's always more complex than that. It's not that easy. It's not that simple. We weren't just the hard workers, the ones who got, and everybody else is just, eh. No, no, no. Life is way more complex than that. No one makes it to the top without some level of grace. No one. And you have to admit that, actually, to grow in grace. You have to admit you have nothing to merit your salvation. If you can't admit that, you haven't received the gospel like the poor, the spiritually poor. History proves it. The Bible says it over and over again. The outsider usually gets it quicker. So let's, let that teach us how to be even generous ourselves. I think Jesus is driving that home for us this morning in our fourth and final truth. When you receive the gospel, the only way you actually can, what does it do in you? What does it do to you? If you receive it, like the spiritually poor, remember, we're not saying you actually have to be literally poor to be a Christian. There's no virtue in poverty in and of itself alone, right? But the fourth truth says this, the gospel produces an actual spiritual poverty and at the very least, a willingness for real poverty. Or we could say, at very least, a willingness to want to be generous. The gospel says Jesus became poor for us. He became poor for you. He stepped many rungs down into earth from the heights of heaven for us. He let go of so much to serve us. That's the gospel. He became dirt poor himself. Didn't have many possessions, a place to lay his head, was a wandering desert preacher. And how did he relieve, re, re, uh, reach excuse me, all these people, all these outcasts with the gospel? He became one himself. That's what he did. And when you receive Jesus like the poor, like the spiritually poor, do you know what it does to you? It makes you live outward for others. From the inside out for others. The book of Acts, which is the companion to the gospel of Luke, he wrote them both. When these early Jews finally understood the message of Jesus and the true mission of the Messiah to die for sinners and to free and release humanity from the, the bondage of sin and open their blind eyes to the truth and, and give them this spiritual re rebirth, do you know what they did? The very first thing they did, they gave away their things. They were supernaturally generous. There was not a needy person among them Acts, the early chapters of Acts say, because they were willing to live with a little less in life to give to others. God wants us to be a generous people, a giving people, a people that move out from ourselves because Jesus became so poor for us. Now, he's not saying, again, the only way is to actually be literally poor. Remember Naaman. But he is asking all of us to give in multiple ways sacrificially to his mission and to others. To at least be willing, have a willingness to live with a little less, to maybe even be what the world might say poor, if he asked you. If you understand the gospel, 
it will always make you more radically generous over time. The more you understand it. This is hard. I'm preaching preaching to myself today with this. This is hard. I mean, they, they wanted to kill Jesus, didn't they? This is hard. This is a hard message. If you don't find yourself at the end of a year being willing to maybe give away a little more or maybe just be a little easier to give away what you have been, then you're not growing in grace. You know, I never talk about money. <laughs> I don't think, I mean, only ever really. We ever really have. Maybe if the passage warrants it, but we just don't talk about it that much. But Jesus is talking about poverty today here. And the Bible talks about money 20 times more than, than sex. <laughs> but we never do. But here we have a story of a wealthy man, Naaman, super wealthy, top of the world, uh, leader of the army, works for the king who was healed by God's grace of leprosy. And you know what? The first thing, if you go back and read the story, the first thing he wants to do after he's healed? Give, give a gift. He wants to give a gift. The gospel frees us from needing to have things or stuff or money, if we want to say it, to be our ultimate security. It doesn't need to be our ultimate security for status or or identity or safety. I know it's scary. It's scary to think about what giving more would look like, whether it's time, money, or just giving of yourself to another human, like letting yourself be known and letting them into your life. It's scary. But when you have the gospel, all that stuff at the end of the day can just be, it can just be money. It's good for us to think from time to time about spiritual poverty. We don't do that very often. Or actual, and how it relates actually to poverty. And spiritual poverty in the gospel of grace and how it promotes generosity. But I think it's good to do that from time to time. That's what Jesus did for these people. Is look, 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 look. Here's who the gospel comes to. As Christ became poor for us, and he's won everything for us, all our inheritance, let's imagine as we kind of lean into 2023, what he's asking of each of us, whether it's generosity with time or a relationship with somebody. Maybe it is finances. Maybe you've been at Bethany Church for a while, and it's your church home, and yet you haven't thought about that. Why would I give? Here's why. God has been gracious with us. May he grow us in generosity, whatever that looks like for you. Let's pray. Jesus, you come to people and you say things that you rattle and turn people upside down a bit. You cause us to think, and for that we're grateful. But yet I also know um, we need your grace and mercy to really wrestle with our own hearts, our own lives, our own patterns especially today as it relates to how do we receive you, Jesus? May you help us receive you as the poor receive. Let us see more and more our radical need of your grace, your mercy, that we have nothing to bring like the outcast, the impoverished person who truly gets that. Let us all get it that way. And as we do, as we see the rich inheritance we have in you, Jesus, may we begin to live more and more generously as a people. Let, it, let us not be able to receive you blandly. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. We're going to respond together.